Well, good morning, church family. So good to see you. Good morning to those in the classic and those watching online. Hey, can you do me a favor? If you have your scripture journal, hold it up. Hold it up. Awesome. Now, who of you do not have one? We have lovely volunteers walking up and down the aisle to hand you one. I want to encourage you to grab this, okay? Uh, we believe getting into God's word is foundational to our faith. It's alive. It's active. And so we want to be able to give you a tangible um, piece of scripture here. Honestly, it's like three for the price of free, right? Like, so you got first and second Timothy in here and lovely Titus. But what we want to do, we're going to be journeying through second Timothy for the next eight plus weeks. We say plus because we have it planned for eight, but some people get long-winded. I don't know who, and we'll see how long this goes. But we want to encourage you, bring this with you because we want you to take notes in it, um, anything that the Lord puts onto your heart and your mind, but also because we're going to be um, going through this small group guide as a church as well. So if you're part of a small group, you'll get this. But if you're not part of a small group, I want to encourage you, join the small group, grab this, because it's going to supplement everything that we're going through in 2 Timothy. Now, I'm really excited about this series because if you are... Um, looking around Austin Oaks Church and trying to discern what the Lord is doing, we really see God stirring up a hunger, first and foremost, to know Jesus. But we also see a growing hunger to make a discipleship movement here at Austin Oaks Church. This past week, we celebrated two events which were amazing. We had the women's gathering that happened on Tuesday. Yep, it was, it was sweet. And then Thursday, we had our second men's gathering as well, uh, which was an awesome time of just moving people into community to help others meet, know, and follow Jesus. And so this series fits part and parcel. It's just part of the whole movement of what we see God doing here at Austin Oaks Church, to be a movement of people who help others to meet, know, and follow Jesus, where we become captivated by Jesus, where we want to know him more, and we want to be able to serve him and proclaim him whatever context that God has us in. Okay, so we're going to be going through this letter, and I just want to give this preface. As we do book studies, they're not like topical sermons per se, where it's like you have this classy intro and the plane is going to smoothly land every single time. It might get to the spot where like I have planned, for instance, this morning, I have planned on notes to talk through verses 1 through 14. The reality is I probably won't get past verse 8. So that means like we're just going to go with it, okay? So that if I have to stop at verse 8, it will mean that I won't have a smooth, snazzy conclusion. We're just going to trust the Lord as we journey through Scripture together, okay? So pray with me as we start this journey as a church family. Jesus, we ask that you would be present. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, soften our hearts, Convict us of sin, stir us up for righteousness. And Lord, I pray that you would do what you do best, grab hearts. We ask that you would be the teacher, you would be our guide. And we ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me kind of set the scene for this letter. This is a powerful 
and dynamic letter written from the Apostle Paul to his spiritual child in the faith, Timothy. I would say, I'm going to put these in my words, the main meta theme, the overarching theme of this letter is looking at this central tenet, Jesus is worth it. He is worth it. And as we look into that, there is another meta theme that follows on the heels of that. And it implicitly, or it, like it implies the importance of discipleship. Jesus is worth it. And we need discipleship for that statement to really grab hold and to make an imprint on our lives. We need to see other people say that to us. We need to be able to say that to other people. So it's not just this isolated thing. Because culture is anti-Christian, it's always going to be coming against. There's always going to be pressure. Jesus is worth it. And as we continue to dive into it, there are four like major exhortations or encouragements that Paul gives to Timothy in this letter. Basically, it summarizes this way. Guard the gospel. Suffer for the gospel. Continue in the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And here's how you're going to do this. Be strong in the grace in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace. And that's what we're calling this series. Is If we were to say, how do we summarize 2 Timothy right here? Be strong in the grace. This letter is a must for every church in every context. And honestly, for our context right now, this is timely. The dominant culture, and we feel this everywhere we go. Like we feel this even in our own city, is consistently and passionately discipling us into its ways, distorting the image of God, coming against Christianity in multiple angles and in multiple ways. And we're seeing, it, we're seeing the enemy's tactics coming even more overtly, getting into the realms of schools and educations of trying to influence the younger generations. Teaching people that it's, it's okay to be defensive and argumentative and be aggressive. That's instilling fear. It's celebrating contempt instead of honor. Villainizing other people instead of learning about other people and serving other people. Propping up hate instead of love. Fear instead of hospitality. Entitlement instead of generosity and sacrifice. We see culture propping up humanity and humanism and progressivism as the truth of the world where there's this subtle layer of atheism that's constantly sowing seeds of hatred towards religion, but specifically towards Christianity. Christianity is oppressive. It's bigoted. It's hateful. It's slowing down progress. It's bordering on evil itself. How do we live faithful in this culture? I mean, like, let's just be honest. There are moments where it's tempting to be ashamed of Jesus in our culture. It's, it's, it's tempting to shrink back when other people around you might be like joining the bandwagon and just bashing the faith. It's tempting to not share Jesus in this culture because we don't want to put things on other people. It's tempting to maybe just do our own Jesus thing on our side, on our own, bomb shelter mentality. And yet, and when we're in the world, we want to fit in with the rest of the world. We want to act like the world and blend in. 
It's even tempting to deconstruct Christianity, to deconstruct the faith and the doctrine in order to reconstruct a faith that makes our system of belief more suitable and more palatable for culture and its setting. It's no different when Paul wrote 2 Timothy. Same issues, same things. That's why this is so important for us to understand. How did they do it? How did the church thrive in a culture that was like set and fixated on exterminating and killing the movement of Jesus Christ? How did they do that? The church in that time was constantly facing the pressure of mockery, pushing on them, the pressure to bow the knee to Caesar. They were constantly reconstructing their false teachers coming into the churches and trying to deconstruct who Jesus was just to make it more palatable to the Greeks and to the Jews so that all people would be like, hey, we're just all going to get along. Paul encourages and urges Timothy to stay strong in the grace, display love, display mercy, guard this gospel with everything in your being, suffer for this gospel. In other words, like keep living for Jesus in public. Don't hide the light in the darkness because when you do, you will suffer. Continue in this gospel. Keep walking in this gospel and proclaim it. Don't shy away. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. The gospel is worth it. Do not give in to shame. Do not be embarrassed. Guard it. Don't let yourself be shaped by the opinions of culture as they continue to press against you. Don't conform to it and be shaped by it, but be shaped and conformed by Jesus because he's worth it. Now, the timing of words and sentences and phrases and thoughts are really significant, right? Like, you can say something, but it might be the wrong time to say it, even though it's true. Like, for instance, like, let's just say in a marriage. You say something, even though it's true, it's the worst time, bad time to say it. And the moment it comes out of your mouth, you're like, oh, my goodness. And you wish you could jump out of your body, grab the words, and pull it back in before it gets into their ears. Anybody? That's never happened to me. I've heard that's a thing. But like, like words of encouragement, timing of them. Like, I, like for instance, like I can say I love you to my wife when everything is good. It's true. She'll be thankful for it. But also like when I say I love you in the midst of a really difficult situation, those words feel different. So what about the phrase Jesus is worth it? Right? Think about it. If Paul was writing this phrase and saying it to Timothy as Paul is riding on a horseback down the beach, riding off into the distant sunset. And he said, guys, Jesus is worth it. It's true. And if Timothy, everything is smooth sailing and peachy keen and not a problem, everything is great. And every time he prays, he hears from God. And every time he reads scripture, God's popping out of this, uh, you know, whatever. And it's just like, it's just there. Jesus is worth it. Yes, he's worth it. But what about when it's said in a totally different context. Because the circumstances that both Paul and Timothy find themselves 
in. Listen, the circumstances that both Paul and Timothy find themselves in could actually cause them to ask the question, is Jesus worth it? That's the question I want you to wrestle with. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth giving everything for? Is he worth suffering for? Is he worth you being ridiculed and mocked and made fun of? Is he worth it? Paul and Timothy, two different contexts, two different situations. Paul, as we're going to see, to him, yes, Jesus is worth it. I know him who I believed. I know his love. I know his goodness. I know his faithfulness. It doesn't matter the circumstance or the situation that I'm in. It could be great. It could be dire. He is worth it. On the flip side, we're going to see Timothy is questioning it. He's being tempted with that thought. Is it? Should I just build a shelter and just kind of like tuck tail and run for a bit until the storm passes and then maybe proclaim Jesus out loud? This is a significant question. Friends, our culture and its anti-Christian polemic, it's going to increase more and more and more. And the pressure that comes from it and the ridicule that comes from it and the reputations that will be placed on you because of it and because of your loyalty to Jesus is going to make you wonder, is he worth it? Am I ashamed of Jesus? Jesus, where are you? Will you come? When's your kingdom coming? I thought this was it. Why aren't people understanding it? They're missing all of the stuff that comes. Is he worth it? So we need to understand this context because Paul wasn't just being a preacher and just saying the nice things and the Sunday school answer, hey, Jesus is worth it. You should know that. Of course we know that Jesus is worth it. The context is significant. So let's start. Verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's talk about Paul. This is Paul's last letter that we know of. He is a prisoner in a Roman prison, literally right outside the avenue of the Roman Forum. It's a historic location called the Mamertine Prison. Last year, literally you walk out this prison and you see the glory and the splendor of Rome. During my sabbatical, I got the privilege of walking Rome for one day. We went and tried to hit all of the sites that we possibly can. We saw the amphitheater. We saw the Colosseum. We went to the Pantheon. We saw the sculptures. We saw all of the stuff. And even feeling the, like, awe of being in a place of such history was, like, earth-shaking, right? You're like, oh, my goodness, effort, so much happened right here. And it was amazing. But nothing grabbed me and moved me like this place. Not many people go here. This prison is, is so 
intense, okay? I wanna, I wanna paint to you this picture of this prison, okay? Roman's prison systems aren't like ours where you go, hey, we're gonna give you a 30-year sentence and you go to prison, they supply you with food and bed and all that kind of stuff. That's not their prison system. They put you in a dungeon, in a cave where you're basically just held to execution and more than likely you would die of starvation in this dungeon. They would throw you in this hole. This is literally, okay, for those of you who do not think that Christianity is historical, this is the literal cell that Paul was in. This is the literal hole that's carved out of the ground that they would throw the prisoner in. And if lucky, they gave you a rope. And if you were to have food, water, clothes, any kind of provision, Rome wouldn't provide it. A friend or a family or a patron of yours would have to come and give it to you through that hole. That's your only means of light. That's your only means of fresh air. It is damp. It is cold. And it is vile. Okay? A Roman historian described this prison this way. It's disgusting and vile by the reason of the filth. It's darkness and its stench. In this prison cell, this is disgusting. So if you've got a, a soft or a weak gag reflex, be, be forewarned. They would literally probably put about 20 to 30 prisoners in this dungeon. And there was this big metal door that was there. And that door was the only thing between that dungeon and Rome's sewage system. Okay? So when they were ready to execute prisoners who weren't Romans, what they would do is they would put these prisoners into this chamber, lift the door, and drown them with the sewage until they would be washed out into the sewage system, they would close the door, drain out all of the sewage, and let it dry. They wouldn't clean it. And then they would put more prisoners in there. This is where Paul wrote this letter. I'd probably be bitter. I'd be like, really? Jesus, I'd probably throw in the towel, be like, ah, done. Paul knows his execution is coming. He, he, he knows that. But Paul, we see this as he's writing Timothy in this cell. Like, I, I love this picture because, like, it said that he was more than likely sitting on that ledge as he wrote this. <laughs> and he's saying to him, he's like, I'm an apostle. I'm still a sent one. I'm still serving Jesus by the will of God. Why? Because I get to tell people about the promise of life. I'm still going at it, Timothy. He's worth it. Like, this is the context. you got to feel that. This isn't just some man who's just whimsically throwing out a cliche statement. He's like, it doesn't matter the circumstance. In fact, we'll see later in this letter, he's like, I'm in prison, I'm in chains. But it's not because of Rome, it's because of Jesus. And the word of God is not chained, so I'm still rolling. Whew. And he writes it to Timothy, his dearly loved son, his spiritual son. He led him to the Lord and he discipled him. He poured his life into Timothy. He took Timothy with him on multiple mission trips and even entrusted him leadership in certain churches and he would leave him there until Paul would either return or he would send someone to say, Timothy, we need you over here. 
This is a significant deal. Let's, let's, let's learn a little bit about Timothy. Timothy was a young man. Timothy represents the next generation. He was encouraged in 1 Timothy to not let those look down upon him because he's young. So scholars would say that the, moment, that the time that Paul wrote this letter, Timothy was probably about 35 years old. Timothy was still probably in Ephesus, pastoring the churches in Asia Minor. And it was a significant deal. Timothy had a frail body. He had some form, storm, form of like stomach issues, some, some ailment that hindered him. And we, we get the sense from how, what we see in Acts and First and Second Timothy that Timothy wasn't a natural-born, courageous, outspoken leader like Paul. He was timid, probably an introvert, someone in need of affirmation and encouragement and reassurance. One who probably had to dig deep to find the courage in order to keep going. This is significant. Paul knows he's about to die. And he's leaving with, like, through the authority of Jesus, the church is in Timothy's hands. And Timothy knows that this is probably Paul's end. Significant. Issues in Ephesus were substantial. If persecution in Rome was strong, persecution in the Roman province was worse. There were so many uh, uh, wolves and sheep clothings coming into the church and pushing all sorts of false teachings about Jesus. The church wasn't giving up the ways of the world. They were like, no, nah, we're going to do this and do this. All sorts of struggles, all sorts of things. Thinking about Paul's in prison. Will I die too? All sorts of things happening inside of Timothy. You can imagine that Paul knew Timothy's frame. He knew Timothy's disposition. He knew the context of all that was happening in Christendom at that time. He probably went, Timothy's probably questioning if Jesus is worth it. So I'm going to write him this letter. I love this. Verse 3. I thank God whom I serve. Like, uh, just, let's nerd out for a bit. Circle that word, thank God. Because, like, really, it's, it's not just like Paul's just going, hey, God, I thank you. This is like Paul saying, like, I am worshiping God. He's worshiping God in this dungeon, praising God. And as he's praising God, he, he finds himself thanking God. He's thanking God who he serves. I'm still serving him in this midst with a clear conscience, knowing that his sins are forgiven, and he's constantly remembering Timothy in his prayers. Imagine how reassuring that had to have been to Timothy. But like what we see here is that like Paul's like, listen, I'm not done discipling you. Even though I'm here in this Blank hole, literally. And you're in Asia, I'm still discipling you. Well, how? I'm praying for you constantly. I love you. I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you. When I worship Jesus, I'm praying for you that your faith would not falter. Paul is discipling and he's letting Timothy know, I haven't given up on you. I constantly remember you in my prayers, remembering your tears. And this is more than likely referencing their last time they saw each other when Paul was being dragged off probably into this prison cell. I long to see you 
We see in chapter 4, he urges Timothy, come quick before winter comes. Quite frankly, because they don't know how long Paul has left to live. I long to see you so that your joy or my, would be filled with joy. Timothy, as I'm worshiping God and I'm thanking God for you and praying for you, I'm reminded and I'm recalling your sincere faith. Circle that word sincere. That first lived in your grandmother, Lois. She was the first person in your family to follow Jesus. And her faith was sincere. Her faith was authentic. And it it also in your mother, Eunice. And now I'm convinced is in you. Timothy, I remember your sincere faith. This word sincere is so beautiful. In the Greek and Latin, you would see how this word breaks apart. And literally, this word would mean without wax. To which you'd be like, what does that mean? In the Greco-Roman world, this was a common phrase in the marketplace. And if you were to say you were to buy a pot... And, and you wanted to know if this pot was like sold from an honest tradesman or a dishonest tradesman. What you would do is you would take this pot and you would put it out into the noon sun. Because here's why. If a dishonest tradesman somehow found a crack or a chip in it, he would take some wax, melt it, mix it with the dust of the product, and then fill in the crack with the wax. He would, he would fill it in and the sun would melt it. And all of a sudden there's this phrase, this is not sincere. It's with wax. But Timothy, your faith is without wax. It stands the heat. It's genuine. It's authentic. You know in your heart that your faith is real. This isn't just something that you chose to do. You saw your faith in your mom and your grandma and you chose for yourself that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Lord. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. It's real. Side note, parents, what legacy do you want to leave behind with your kids? This is beautiful. Faith from your grandmother to your mother. And it's hard for me to not notice, and maybe I'm making something out of nothing, but it screams to me the silence of no male figure. Where's dad? We know that his dad wasn't a believer in Christ, and he's more than likely dead in this time, but discipling your children is a great responsibility and gift that God has given us. So Paul was calling out Timothy's faith. It's a real thing. It's authentic Therefore, Timothy, verse 6, therefore, because, because of this, therefore, because of your sincere faith, because of the legacy, because it's authentic, I remind you, rekindle the gift of God that's in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy, because your faith is real. Remember that we talked about this. I love that Paul said that. It's like, 
Timothy, don't you remember that one time we talked about this? That when you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit gives you a gift. Every believer who professes faith in Jesus is given a gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember how we understood that. That's our responsibility to use that gift. Remember when I told you to rekindle this gift, like fan it into flame. He's given you the gift, but now it's up to you. It's your responsibility to use that gift. Not just for you, but for the sake of other people. And in fact, when you fan that gift and you use that gift, it actually gives you great joy and fulfillment because that's why you were made. Like we're saved by grace. And as a result of that, we've been given good works that God's prepared in advance for us to do. Timothy, we talked about this. Fan it. And the fact that he had to say rekindle, think about that image. Why did the fire dwindle? Where's your fire? What's your spiritual temperature? Are you using the gift that the Holy Spirit gave you? Are you a passive bystander, a consumer, a spectator? Do you really even believe that the Spirit gave you a gift? Like, it's one thing to take an assessment and be like, wow, I got the gift of preaching. Woohoo! Great. Have you fanned it into flame? I have the gift of serving. Great. How are you serving? I have the gift of, well, I don't even know what my gift is. Well, just start doing something. It's been given to you. Rekindle it. Fan it into flame. Get it white hot. The gifting is there, but it's need for more fire. Timothy, keep it going. And yes, rekindling a fire when a fire is about to die out, it's annoying to get it back going. It takes work. You start to look like a fool. (sighs) Timothy, I know. Rekindle it. Be where Jesus is. Abide in Jesus. Stay in the word. Be in community. Keep worshiping. Keep praying. Fan it into flame. Use the gift. Why did the fire die down? Verse 7 really does scream to us why. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound mind. There it is is Timothy is wrestling with fear. Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of fear. Fear is not from God. You will have fear because the enemy is coming against you and yet you also still battle your own flesh. You will have fear. Fear is not compatible with faith in Jesus. Having fear and acting in fear are totally different things. The spirit of fear that causes cowardice, causes avoidance, causes backing off, causes not us getting engaged, that's not of God. That's what the enemy in the world wants to do to you is to cause you to live in fear so that the fire in you dies out. Timothy, no. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Rekindle that fire that's inside of you. God 
didn't give us this spirit of fear. What could Timothy be afraid of? Oh, you know, just false teaching in the church. Maybe Timothy's like, I don't know all the answers to their arguments. I don't know how to answer them. How Jesus was born of a virgin. I don't know. You ever feel that? You don't want to share Jesus with things because of the questions they might be bringing. You'd be like, I don't know. And then all of a sudden you feel stupid. And you're like, well, I'm never doing that again. Fear is not of God. Fear is not of God. Man, I want to talk to my friend. And you feel fear. That's not of God. For God gave us a spirit of power and of love and of sound judgment to be able to think clearly in the midst of that fear to move in step with the spirit. Power to overcome whatever intimidation, whatever pressure, whatever issues that, are, that it is here. Right? I immediately think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure's in the inside. It's not about me. It's not about my competency. It's not about any of that. Yes, we're hard-pressed on every side, but we're not torn down. That's the power of God. So many things. I could imagine Timothy being afraid of going, I am not like you, Paul. I, I, I don't know how to do this. That's a tension in the generational passing. I followed two senior pastors who were in the pulpit, in their position for 20 plus years, both churches, both scenarios. I walked into it terrified. I'm not them. I don't know how to do what they did. Like, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to even talk like them. I surely won't dress like them. And they're going to put expectations on me. They're going to want me to be like him. And I'm going to disappoint him. That's fear. And that's not of God. But it's normal. Timothy. God will give you everything you need. He will give you everything you need. In your weakness. My grace is made strong, powerful, and sufficient. We don't want people to put in their faith in Jesus because of how awesome you are. We want people put in their faith in Jesus because of how awesome he is. So if that means you have to be weak, you have to be scared, you have to look like a fool for Jesus to be made much of, rejoice in it. He's given you a spirit of power, love, and sound judgment. This is such a big deal, friends, because if we give into fear and if Timothy gives into fear, fear distorts so many things. Fear causes us to doubt God, right? God, I don't know if you will. God, are you good? God, are you this? I'm doing it. Causes us to doubt his love. Does he love me? Doubt his goodness, his faithfulness. Fear causes us to live again for ourselves. Fear causes us to depend on ourselves again. Fear causes us to question our ability to be even used by God. Who am I? What can I do? What can I say? But no. You've been given the spirit of power and love and sound judgment Fear distorts so much, but there is a subtle and vile 
thing that happens if we give in to fear. Verse 8. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. This suffering for the gospel, we're going to see in a little bit, is, is a result of living for Jesus. When you bring out light into darkness... He's saying to them, like, share in the suffering. Keep sharing Jesus. You will suffer. You will face it. It will happen. Keep sharing in it. But look at this. Don't be ashamed. Here's the subtlety and the danger of fear. Fear causes us to be ashamed of Jesus. Think about it. I want you to spend some time in thinking about it. Let me give you a great biblical example. Peter, when Jesus was being tried, and a middle school girl looks at Peter and says, you were with him. Well, Peter was afraid. And what did he do? He was ashamed. No. I don't know. Nope, not me. I don't know. When we give in to fear, again, fear is normal. It's natural. But when you give in to it, it's not compatible with faith. And when you give in to fear, you will naturally, slowly find yourself ashamed of Jesus in public. Is Jesus worth it? Timothy may be getting paralyzed by fear to the point that he's no longer using his gift because he's shrinking back. He may be becoming afraid of standing for Jesus in public. Timothy, don't be... Ashamed of the testimony but our Lord. Like the story of Jesus. Don't remember him. He took on flesh. In fact, our story, our testimony, our message isn't an idea. It's not a religious structure. It's not a political ideology within a religious framework. It's not even a denomination. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. He took on flesh. He lived for us. He came for us. He died for us. He conquered the grave for us. He intercedes for us. He's given us the Holy Spirit to live in us as a seal to confirm that we've been adopted, and now we have a Father in heaven. This is our testimony. Don't be ashamed of it. Timothy, don't allow culture to rob you, to cause you to shrink back. Friends, like, I'm going to end here, okay? Promise. (laughs) The cross was a vile, obscene symbol in that culture. Today, We wear crosses as jewelry. 
Even if you're not a believer, you wear a cross. And some people use it as superstition. It's not a vile symbol. But in that culture, you could even say the word cross. You could even say the word crucifixion without people looking at you like you just said the worst swear word in the world. It was the greatest act of shame that could ever come upon a person. Dishonor and disgrace. That's why when you read in Scripture and it says that the message of the cross is foolishness to them. To them they're like, how could this be? It is ridiculous and they mock you and they laugh at you that you would say the son of God, the conquering king of kings, would take on flesh and die on the cross. Imagine trying to say that in public. Did you know that there was ancient Roman memes? Let me show you one. This is called the Alexamenos Graffito. This was being passed around, circulated in the Roman province around the time of this letter. You'll see a person on the cross with the head of a donkey, a.k.a. also known as a fill in the blank, and that is Jesus. And they got a person in, in the scribe there, in the, the Greek there, his name is Alex, Alex Amenos, and it says, Alex Amenos worships God. And it was mockery. This was circulated. It was a popular meme. You want me to tell people about the cross? Like, <laughs> Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus speaking for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, did you notice that? Whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus, myself, my person, and my words, carry your own cross. Anybody who's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, this is hard. The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him. Friends, Jesus will be mocked. The Bible will be mocked. Don't let fear drive the car. Stand for him and let the chips fall where they may. And Paul continues, and Paul's, or Chad next week is going to unpack the rest about why the gospel, gospel, this is why I suffer. Verse 12 is beautiful. Paul's like, this is why I suffer because I know him whom I trust. I know Jesus. And then he urges Timothy at the very end, hold on to my pattern of sound teaching. Do what I've been doing, Timothy. Yes, it led me here in this cell on the verge of execution. Hold on to it, Timothy. It's sound teaching. It's healthy. It's right. Guard the good deposit that God put inside of you. Guard it with everything you have, Timothy. We need to answer the question, is Jesus worth it? As a church. Because not only does God want to use you individually, he wants to use us corporately. And will we as a church Stand and say, yes, he's worth it. Come what may. But here's what I long for. 
and what we've been praying for is that we in this church will take the call of discipleship seriously because Timothy needed Paul to say that to him. Church, classic service, online, listen, we need older generations to look at the younger generations and say, he's worth it. See how I lived. I've given up much. I've served much. I've done much. He's worth it. 40, 50-year-olds, you need to look down people around you and say to them, he's worth it. 20-year-olds, you need to look down and say to those teenagers, he's worth it. Everybody, one of the sayings we say here at Austin Church is we need every generation to reach every generation. It is significant. I'm telling you, the culture out there is hungry for truth. I've been meeting with a group of guys every Thursday. It's a mixture. Some believe, some don't believe. And one of the things that I found fascinating was two of the guys, one of them is now a believer, praise the Lord. The other one is so close. They would say, we can't even have these conversations about Jesus with our friends. And so it's like people are hungry. God is searching. God is polling. He's worth it. We need to invest into each other. So here's kind of how I want us to end. I want you first and foremost, I got three or four simple applications. Write these down in your journals. Answer this question in authenticity and honesty and with the Holy Spirit. Where are you ashamed of Jesus? Where are you afraid? Where do you give in to the spirit of fear that's not of God? Answer that question. Ask why. Secondly, if you profess faith in Jesus, you've been given a gift to serve others and to build up the church. How are you fanning your gift into flame? How are you doing it? And if you want to know and you want to talk about it and you got questions... There's a connect card there. Fill it out. Put your name, email, phone number. Say, I want to learn how to fan into flame my gift. We will follow up with you. And last, who's your one up? Who's your one down? And who's your horizontal? Who's your one up? Who's investing their life into you? Who's, who's your Paul? Who's your one down? Who are you discipling? Who are you saying and looking in the eye, he's worth it, see how I lived? This, this should be happening simultaneously in a lot of ways. And who's your horizontal? Who, who are you walking this journey out with? Who are your friends who are walking on mission in pursuit of Jesus as well? Because you can't do this alone. I want to end with this quote. Favorite quote, you probably have heard it before. A young pe- preacher from Zimbabwe summarizing First Tim- or 2 Timothy verse 6 
through 8 says this. I have the quote. You're going to have to backtrack on it. Thanks, Newt. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast and I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, and prayed up, and paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.